Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McCavely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to the 61st episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you into our world of financial markets and financial planning. So good afternoon to you, Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. It's weird recording in the afternoon. Yeah, it doesn't feel right. We're just used to the mornings. Schedules only permitted for this today. Yeah. So, Listeners, we usually record before the market open, just to give you some perspective. Yeah. So um, we'll hop right into it since it's the first day of September. Uh, we really don't have any performance data for you, but we'll go over August performance um, next week to get the full month's performance. But it was the strongest August, I believe, Matt, in the markets since 1984, I want to say. It's impressive. So um, the market continues just to stair step higher, uh, baffling a whole lot of people, um, economists, investors, professional hedge fund managers. So it's been an interesting um, five months, really. It has. You know, uh, last night, uh, you and I released our September market outlook for our clients. We pushed that out. And you and I kind of highlighted the common question we're getting, which is this. Why is the stock market doing so well, Mark? And I see Main Street America or my local businesses not doing good. And you and I went through, we highlighted about six or seven themes that we see playing out over the next 12 to 18 months as to kind of why you're seeing that. Right. Yeah. So listeners, if you did not get a hold of that, feel free to reach out to uh, Mark. At, and you want to give him your email address? Yeah. Mark at JessupWealthManagement.com. And then I'll be able to send that off to you. Perfect. So jumping right into big news and headlines from the week, um, the government struck a deal with Abbott Labs for 150 million rapid COVID tests that um, we are being told are very accurate and gives results in 15 minutes. Impressive. So I think this is kind of a big step in the right direction for travel and leisure. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if some hotels or maybe even airlines use the rapid test before they let people in or on board or what have you. So could I, you see that happening? I could, Mark. I mean, you know, right now some of these places are doing, you know, the the forehead temperature check with the thermal scanners, right? Yeah, I was but, just at the Apple store this weekend and I got thermal checked. Did they do it there? Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So um, I could definitely see this um, becoming something that's utilized. And with the evolution of technology, you know, it's 15 minutes now. Who knows? In three months, they could have it down to 10 minutes and so forth. But I could see this being used. Yeah. So I think that, you know, travel and leisure companies popped um, on that news. So that's um, exciting for people who want to get back to their normal uh, traveling. Yes. Uh, next, the S&P 500 index, again, as we mentioned earlier, recorded its fifth straight record close as of Friday, led by the mega cap tech. Um, so the S&P 500 index through August 28th was up 17 out of 20 trading days in August, and that leads to 85% of all trading days. So since the exchange traded ETF ticker symbol SPY started trading remap, there's never been another month that had a higher winning percentage of daily trading. That's impressive numbers. Yeah, especially because, you know, if you look back at the performance of the market 
on a seasonal basis, typically August and September tend to be pretty weak on average. Mm -hmm. So it was very weird for people to see such a strong August, given that historically it hasn't been a great month for the markets. Accurate. Um, Federal Reserve talked last week and Jerome Powell did, um, I think it was on Thursday and they just continued to communicate, uh, to the market that they're going to keep rates low for an extended period of time. So, you know, the central bankers stated that they would not preemptively raise interest rates to ward off higher inflation. Like some people are thinking about, uh, just to be able to let the job market recover. So that was interesting from Fed chair Powell yesterday. My only comment there, Mark, is just think about this for a second. Would you ever envision a Federal Reserve that telegraph is telegraphing interest rate policy this far out? I mean, they didn't do that in 07 and 08. Right. Just think about that. They are telegraphing Fed policy for the next 12, 18 months. That's that's such a big deal for the market. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think that it just benefit, benefits, again, risk on assets. It does. Um, it does. It's not going to be a straight line up, but... You know, definitely when you know that they're going to be low for, say, that period of time that they're communicating, they said, and I quote, through the end of 2021, you know, that's over 12 months. That's significant. Right. Right. Um, the last thing in terms of news and headlines I had was that the SEC updated accredited investor rules. So they expanded the definition of an accredited investor, but it wasn't... Uh, what people are expecting, I guess, is, okay. is what I'm going to say. So um, the definition of an accredited investor is either you're earning $200,000 per year if you're single or over $300,000 per year if you're married for at least the last two years or having a net worth that's north of $1 million outside the value of your primary residence. Mm -hmm. So the accredited, accredited investor rules were created for people who don't know to limit the ability of businesses to solicit capital from investors who may not be sophisticated, in air quotes, enough to understand the unique risks of investing in small companies that are less regulated and aren't publicly traded. So this is for an example you know, a, a friend or a family member has a great business idea and they're trying to get capital from investors. Yep. You know, legally to be able to do that, you, you need to be an accredited investor, right? Um, and that's, you know, where all of this venture capital funding comes from, from people who are defined as accredited investors. But the SEC kind of has been criticized about this in recent years because there's fast growth startups um, that have been waiting longer and longer to become publicly traded. And there are significant growth opportunities in these, and it's only limited to high net worth people, essentially. So sure. it's almost discriminating against people that don't have the money to invest in these type of things. Yep. Um, so the SEC issued new guidance on these rules, expanding the accredited investor definitions to be based not only on income or net worth, but also on alternative measures of financial sophistication. So specifically, this means financial advisors themselves holding either a Series 7, 65, or 82 will qualify as accredited investors. And this only 
is for financial advisors. It's not for financial advisors to make decisions on behalf of their clients. Got it. So it still doesn't really solve the problem of what people were arguing for. It's like, hey, people might not have $200,000 of income per year, but someone can make the argument that they're sophisticated enough to make investing decisions like that for themselves. So, you know, the sophistication and net worth and income isn't really correlated essentially. So I don't really know how I feel about this. I think that I understand where the SEC is coming from is they don't want people to get taken advantage of. But I also don't think that they have the right to tell people what they can or can't invest in based on how much money they make or how much they're worth. Yeah, I see. I see both aspects. It's It's an excellent point, Mark. I think the thing that I come at is not even talking about the risk associated with these types of investments. I think the focus for me is the liquidity because a lot of these investments are illiquid in nature. And I am speculating that the SEC's angle on this is is that, is that if somebody has a lower net worth or they make less than those income thresholds, if they put a significant portion of their net worth in it, they're going to lack liquidity. So if they need that money, I think that that's the angle for the SEC. I'm just I don't know that for sure as my personal opinion. The liquidity aspect is is, is my biggest issue with that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. But you know the, the risk, that's its own different animal, right? Right. But yeah, I mean, so this is now in stone. Uh, this is in stone as far as I'm as I'm aware. Interesting. Yeah. So and yeah, and I understand what you're saying about the liquidity thing, but almost too for a lot of people it takes the emotional side out of it because you, you know, you give your money for 10 years and it's locked up. You can't touch it for 10 years. I guess it takes away the emotional game that people play with themselves of, you know, getting in and out of the market. Good point. Um, Good so point. that's another thing for people to consider Almost as well. like forced discipline in that respect. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah to follow your plan. Yeah. Right? Good point. All right. Um, moving on to tweets, articles and research from the week that caught our eyes and the first thing I had was an article from Think Advisor that lists the their twelve cheapest cities for a comfortable retirement. Interesting. So I just want to go through and list these cities, but the funny thing is, Matt, that all of these except for one, two that you can argue about, ten out of the twelve are in the Midwest. <laughs> So again, I think we're going to tell me San Francisco, Miami, New York, Chicago, Dallas didn't show up on the list. Yeah, I think we're going to continue to see the migration from the coast just because of what's going on with covid, how expensive it is to live on the coast. And then also, you know, I've read a lot of research on that people haven't saved enough for their retirement to continue to live the way they're living during their working years, especially in those places. So that means for a lot of people that, you know, they're going to have to cut back their spending in retirement and a good way to do that is to move to a city that, you know, the cost of living is cheaper. You better believe it. So I thought that this was uh, really, really interesting. So number 12 was Bedford, Ohio, which is just south of Cleveland. 11 was Lorraine, Ohio, just west of Cleveland. Uh, Wausau, I think is how you pronounce it. Wisconsin, which mm-hmm. is just west of Green Bay. Got to be a cheesehead to go there, though. Yep. Yeah, you got to be. Kokomo, Indiana, which is north of Indianapolis. I've heard of that. Yep, not far away from us in Dayton. Midland, Michigan, Davison, Michigan, Flushing, Michigan, Grand Ledge, Michigan, St. John's, Michigan, and number three on the list, Matt, was Vandalia, Ohio. 
So just north of us here, north of Dayton, with average monthly expenditures, according to ThinkAdvisor, of just over $1,200 a month. Impressive. So that's very interesting because that's really close to us. Uh, number two was Turtle Creek, Pennsylvania, which right is... This? My dad was born in Turtle Creek, Pennsylvania. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So you want to go back? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, it's nothing against, nothing against Turtle Creek or, or Pennsylvania. Right. So just, that's just like southeast of Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, it's very it's, it's a suburb of Pittsburgh. That's awesome. Yeah. And number one, Talmadge, Ohio. So, you know, again, the Midwest is from at least this article, one of the best places to uh, to enjoy your retirement year. So I love that. It's going to be interesting to see if people do, you know, if this thesis does play out and people do start moving to the Midwest for their retirement. I mean, I've seen the fad where uh, people on the coast have, you know, sold their house that appreciated so much. They got their equity out. They moved to the Midwest. They can buy a house completely outright. Uh, they could invest that difference, get income off of it. I mean, I don't see that trend changing anytime soon. Yeah. The Midwest isn't that bad. Nice people here. Lower taxes. Lower taxes, <laughs> lower cost of living. So, yeah, we're biased, but I, I thought that was an interesting article. We can't help ourselves. Um, the next one is, I think, kind of a controversial article that was written by Michael Batnick. Send in, it. I can't wait uh, to see this. July of uh, this year, July 29th. Oh, my birthday. Yeah. And it's called The Permanent Portfolio. So um, he starts off the article by saying this. Everything is working. Whether you're an equity investor, hiding out in bonds, or waiting for the dollar to collapse, you're making money. And... In plain English, Matt, correlations are really high right now. So I think people have to be careful what they listen to when they say, oh, gold's a store of value or it's a safe haven. But, you know, gold kind of got crushed there for a little bit during the COVID thing. And now it's moving almost in lockstep with the market higher. Yeah. So, you know, people need to realize that, you know, every time stocks are up doesn't mean bonds and gold are down and vice versa, that these things can get very, very correlated and move in the same direction at the same time. I was going to say that explain correlation, but you just did that. Yeah. So that's when asset classes move together in the same fashion, which historically tends to not be the case. Right. But there are periods of time where, where they, they do. do. Yeah. And this is one of those. Right. And the the idea of the permanent portfolio is having a 25% allocation to stocks, 25% allocation to bonds, 25% to gold, and 25% to cash. And it rebalances monthly. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Michael says the main tenet behind this type of strategy is based on the old adage, don't have all your eggs in one basket. This means by definition that you'll be underexposed to the best basket, stocks in this case. Since 1976, the S&P 500 gained 11.2% per year. The permanent portfolio gained 7.9% over the same time. The appeal of this portfolio as I see it, Michael sees it, is an effective way to avoid catastrophe. In the aftermath of the dot-com bubble, the stock market fell nearly 50%. The maximum drawdown of the permanent portfolio was 5%. Stocks fell more than 50% during the great financial crisis. The max drawdown for the permanent portfolio was less than 15%. And during the most recent bear market, stocks fell more than 30%, while the maximum drawdown for the permanent portfolio was just 5%. Right? So there's a trade-off here, Matt. If you're investing for the long term, 
and you can weather the ups and downs in the market, it pays to be more aggressive and having a higher allocation, higher stock. allocation to stocks. But, you know, you give up a lot of upside when you're in the permanent portfolio. However, the downside is not as bad. So you have to balance this, again, based on your goals and objectives, I think. But over the long term, I think that it's going to be more of a negative to have a permanent portfolio if you're an investor that's in it for you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Yes. And I think the other point I'd like to make is we have been, quote unquote, in a bull market for bonds for some time. And I don't, um, I think it's going to be challenging. I'm going to use my words very cautiously here. I think it's going to be very challenging for that asset class to continue to produce some of these historical returns. That's, I think it's the best way for me to say it and toe the, toe the line. <laughs> yeah, it'll be interesting because... Meaning these, these longer term returns that you mentioned that this permanent portfolio has produced... In my opinion, I think they're going to be forward-looking lower than the historical. Just my two cents. Yeah. Um, continuing on, he says, one of the biggest risks to the permanent portfolio is not the investments, but the investor. Boredom and fear of missing out makes this a difficult strategy to implement in real life. Considering that it would have underperformed the stock market 64% of the time, it takes a certain type of person to stick through this thick and thin. Mm -hmm. And I think this is... Good extremely point. important point. because all of us are so uh, driven to get that automatic satisfaction, right? And if the stock market's going gangbusters and is up 30% in one year and this permanent portfolio is only up 5%, a lot of people are going to have a problem with that. On the onset, they might not because they see the low drawdown, but in real life, when you're actually in it, living it, it's hard to stick with when you see a different asset class performing so well and yours isn't. I absolutely agree. So, and he used um, monthly data for this. So um, if you want to read that whole article, uh, you could check it out on our show notes page that I should have working by today after the technical issues, but jessupwealthmanagement.com. Uh, hover over the podcast tab and click on the show notes, and that article will be linked there. Excellent. I think that's a good one you picked. Um, so I'll give it back to you for a couple uh, notes. Yeah, uh, listeners, I got a couple of good things. So first thing I'd like to discuss is, you know, what happens after such a strong August? August, what happens historically next for the market? So this is some raw research from our uh, our friends at Bespoke Investment Group. Um, one month after the prior six occurrences mark, the SPY, and I'm referencing that uh, popular S&P 500 um, exchange traded fund that tracks it, uh, SPY is the ticker, was up by an average of 2.4% and was positive two thirds of the time. Just a single data point, but I want to throw it out there. So that's the next month after, you know, such a strong August, okay? Three months after, uh, the average performance uh, for those periods is 4.2%. Six months after, average performance, 7.1%. In one year after, average performance after such a strong August, 11.17%. Again, just one data point. But it um, that surprised me when I saw that. Did it surprise you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. But, um, you know, I think this is a good example of... The saying that history never repeats itself, but it always rhymes. 
<laughs> type of thing. Um, but, you know, I think this is a good data point just because, again, with the seasonal thing, everyone pays a lot of attention to that and they get nervous in August and September because historically been down months. Yep. And, um, you know, this just shows that not saying it's going to, but the market still could have some room to run to the upside. This data point says that. Right. Okay. So I got one more from Bespoke. Um, this is also from August 28th. Um, this next piece is my definition and my opinion of a stock picker's market. Mark, if this continues, um, this, this piece goes over S&P 500 sector performance year to date. Okay. And again, this is from Bespoke August 28th. Year to date, best performing sector, technology. What's it up? 33%. Followed by consumer discretionary up 27.2. Two bottom worst performing sectors of the S&P 500 year to date, energy on average down over 41%, financials down over 19. So um, my prepared question for you is this, Mark, if this continues, how will this affect the trend towards indexing? Well, I think people are going to get more specific on, you know, using sector exchange traded funds to get exposure to some of these more popular areas like tech and consumer discretion areas right now. Um, you know, like me and you have talked about several times before, you know, our economy is evolving to much more technologically oriented economy and we're a consumption based economy. So consumer discretionary should be doing well most of the time. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, eventually when people start to see these changes, that there's going to be a lot more people utilizing sector ETFs to try to outperform the general market. So they're not getting weighed down by sectors like financial and energy during a time like this. Not saying that financials and energy are always going to underperform, but I think people seeing information like this will make them utilize the sector ETFs rather more. than just buying the S&P 500 in general. Right, right. And then um, let's take maybe 60 seconds and, and explain to listeners when we say the term stock pickers market, okay, I'm going to briefly explain what that means. And then I want you to fill in some of the blanks. Okay. So listeners, when we say that term, what it means is you might have say muted performance for the S&P 500 overall, but active money managers, i.e. individual stock selection are money managers that go out there and instead of just buying the whole index, they'll just buy a sector of the market like Mark was indicating, such as technology or consumer discretionary, or even more, they would go in and they'd buy specific companies within those sectors, thinking that I think this company, ABC Cogs, is gonna outperform XYZ Cogs. Mm -hmm. And we like to call that in our industry listeners, um, it's a stock picker's market where you're going to have a big performance difference from one sector to another or companies within the same sector. And in my opinion, this is the definition of a stock picker's market. This is where if you're a good active manager, you should be shining. Yeah, but I think it goes either ways because if you're wrong, then you're going to get hammered. Yeah, it's a good know? point. You know, good so, point. Um, so yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting environment right now. And usually, you know, most sectors move up altogether when, you know, the the index is doing well, but this is a period where it's kind of split. There's one, two, three, four, five, six sectors that are in the green and five sectors that are in the red right now. So it's kind of split. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll get that up on the show notes for, for the viewers. I'm sorry, the listeners. Um, I got one more piece. Um, this is a negative data point, but 
I'm going to give you my flavor uh, on, on why I think it's that way, and then we'll see what you say. So this next data point, uh, listeners, is a market sentiment index, and it is from Citigroup, and it's called their panic and euphoria model. Okay, this is a proprietary model. I'm not sure what goes into the cooking and how they produce this, but this is something that people track and watch a lot of. I see a lot of it on research sites. So this chart is showing an extremely elevated euphoria right now in the market, which if you think about it from a contrarian standpoint, Mark, that tends not to be a good thing. Because historically, if everyone's euphoric, that means that all of their money's been used to buy risk assets, and you don't have enough dry powder left to bid this stuff up. Now, historically, that's what I would think. Now, if you go back to a couple of our recent podcasts, we highlight that money supply, there's a ton of cash on the sidelines. We specifically had that as a data point in our September market outlook, where we talked about historically the five-year average of M2 money supply, which is things like checking, saving, CDs, and money markets, man, it's a huge inflated number this year. There's a immense amount of money still on the sidelines. If that weren't the case, and I saw this chart showing euphoria, that would be major concern for me. But again, we're in this COVID environment where things just sometimes don't make sense. And this is one of those where you're seeing euphoria but we're seeing a lot of cash still on the sidelines. So what's your response to that? Yeah, it's just interesting to me because I'm going to try to pull up um, another sentiment survey that I think maybe goes against this. So it's just I want to know how they come up with these sentiment numbers because there's a bunch of different surveys out there that gauge investor sentiment. Kind of like political polling. So this, yeah, exactly. So this one that I'm pulling up, it's the uh, AAII Investor Sentiment, Sentiment Survey. Yeah. And the results for the week ending on August 28th, 32% of investors were bullish, 28% were neutral, and almost 40% were bearish. That's completely flip-flopped. That's, pretty, that's a pretty bearish AAII report there. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, I wonder how, I, and again, I, I'm not off the top of my head. I, I forget how all of these are individually calculated. Now, that one, the AAII, is actually just an objective question. You answer if you're one of those three. Right. I think, uh, I'm guessing that Citigroup's model is all based upon like weighted index items like the VIX or where gold's at or where equities are at and so forth. Yeah. Where I think that the one that you're highlighting, which I would put more weight to an objective mm -hmm. stance, that's telling me that a lot of individual investors are more bearish. Right. And that proves the point why there's so much cash on the sidelines. Right, exactly. So it's, it's definitely interesting, and it's one that we that we check every now and then. I just don't know. It's just one of those things that you can't put all your weight into one indicator, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, back to you. So this week's financial planning topic of the week uh, comes to us by our good friend Ashby Daniels who we've had on the podcast before <clears throat> and this was on his blog the retirement field guide and this one is titled IRA mistakes that retirees make and this goes uh, back to August 19th is when this was published so everything that Ashby 
lists in this article are relatively easy things that I think as long as retirees are aware of them, it shouldn't be an issue for most people. But again, I think that the root of the problem is that people are just not aware of them and aware of some of the nuances when it comes to retirement and the rules associated with retirement accounts. Okay. So <clears throat> this was a really good article that Ashby wrote. Um, so the first mistake he uh, lists is failing to name beneficiaries. So what happens if you don't name a beneficiary of a retirement account, right? It likely goes to your estate, which instead of the 10-year rule for eligible designated beneficiaries, the estate- Lump sum, baby. Or it's paid out over five years now. Oh, five years. So it's cut in half. All yeah. right. So- Again, and the account is subject to probate, which is public record. Okay. So there's two negatives there. So if you guys remember when we talked about the SECURE Act that got passed late in 2019, it changed the benefic- or excuse me, the beneficiaries' um, options for what they can do with the account once they inherit that account. Okay. So say, Matt, that you know, I'm the beneficiary of your IRA. Under the old rules, I was able to stretch that over my lifetime. That's right. So not okay. to make it all a taxable event quickly. Correct. Um, but now, if I were to inherit your account, I'd have to deplete that account in 10 years. Yep. Not all e- in one year. That's but even could, for your, your kids, your family members, not just unrelated people. It's 10 years max. Right. Exactly. So unless it's your spouse or there's a couple other nuances, but for most people, the account has to be depleted in 10 years. All right. So if you leave it to your estate, i.e. you don't list a beneficiary on your account, then you have to deplete it in five years. So it's even more of a tax liability once you pass away. That's one thing I did not know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And again, the second thing is the account subject to probate, which we all know is not a fun process to go through. And it's not fun for family members to go through. And that's all public information. So just by listing beneficiaries on your retirement account, which you should do when you open the retirement account, saves people a lot of headaches uh, when you are passed away. Yeah. So that's a a big one. And that was mistake number one uh, that Ashby uh, listed. And another thing to consider too, Matt, is people need to continually review and update your beneficiary designations. either maybe annually, semi-annually, or you know, if you go through a major life event, you need to make sure these things are updated. I mean, we have a checklist internally that we go through with clients at least once a year that has that stuff. Mm-hmm. So what do you think the second mistake is? Outdated beneficiaries. There it is. Okay. So Ashby paints this scenario for people. Imagine being on your second marriage and unexpectedly passing after being married for a few years. Your spouse likely believes that he or she is a listed primary beneficiary of your IRA accounts. But what if you forgot to update your beneficiaries upon getting remarried? If that's the case, it's quite possible that your ex-spouse will be the recipient of the funds. That is probably not how you or your spouse would like this to go, but once it's done, it's done. Yeah, if it's like that and you pass away, there's no change in it. Right. And, you know, we've heard horror stories of stuff like that happening. And Mainly ju- employer-sponsored plans that we have no control over for clients that aren't even ours, right? We hear these stories, though. Right. That's just a horror scene. So I would encourage people to, you know, at least once per year, if not once every two years, review with your advisor or if you manage your own accounts, review your beneficiaries to make sure they are updated. Absolutely. 
mistake number three is naming an improperly structured trust as a beneficiary. And we've talked about this before. You have, Mark. Yep. Um, and again, we're not attorneys, so I'm not going to go in this too uh, deeply, but I just wanted to share something that Ashby said. And he said this, it is critical that you have any existing trust reviewed by a qualified estate planning attorney to ensure that the goals you had in mind when you established your trust can still be accomplished in today's legal environment. Good way of saying it. So I know that a lot of people like to leave IRAs to the trust because they want to leave all of their assets to the trust, but the trust needs to be a specific trust and there needs to be specific language in there for it to make sense, especially with the passage of the SECURE Act which says that the beneficiary has to de deplete the account in 10 years, and that just, just can cause a mess of tax consequences for people. So well put. if your trust is a beneficiary of a retirement account, I would highly recommend that you get with your attorney to make sure that the language is correctly written yep. so that uh, beneficiaries don't have huge tax consequences Excellent down the road. Point. Mistake number four is forgetting about your RMD or taking less than required. So you must start taking distributions from your traditional IRA in the year after the year you turn 72. So when in the year you turn 73, you need to take an RMD, okay? And you must take that first distribution by April 21st that year and then take a second distribution by December 31st that same year. So you can avoid, which we, I'm not gonna say we recommend, but I think it's smart for a lot of people by taking your first RMD the year you turn 72 and yep. then proceeding with the RMDs every year thereafter. To spread that liability. Because you don't want to take two RMDs in one year. That's just going to cause tax consequences, especially if you're retired. And it could throw you in a higher bracket. Throw you in a higher tax bracket. So, you know, I would, in my opinion, someone turns 72, they take their first RMD when you turn 72. And then every year after that, you're going to have another RMD. You know, throw out there, uh, listeners, we have Aaron Kramer on our team. He does all of our financial planning. He knows this stuff inside and out. And if you are kind of contemplating, you know, when to start taking that RMD, should you double it up at age 73 or split it like Mark just recommended, you can reach out to provide or assist you in kind of that decision-making process. Yeah. Um, so the, the, we get a lot of questions about how RMDs are calculated and it really depends on your life expectancy. <clears throat> so there's a bunch of calculators online out there if people want to look and see the math behind it, but it's really not that complicated to determine how much your RMD is. Um, and a, an example that Ashby lists is this. If you are 72 and had a prior year December 31st balance of a million dollars, you would need to withdraw approximately $36,497 for your first RMD. Um and here's a kicker. If you don't take your RMD or you take less than what is required, the IRS imposes the largest penalty they have, which is 50% on the amount that was not taken plus interest. So using the example that Ashby listed, that person would have a penalty of just over $18,000. Wow. So especially if you, you know, self-manage these accounts, it's really important that you do not miss your RMD Absolutely. because it's a 50% penalty. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so a big part of this too, Matt, is where this really causes issues is when people have accounts all over the place. So they have a traditional IRA with one advisor, 
they manage one of their own traditional IRAs, they have a 401k from their old employer, and you need to take an RMD from all these accounts, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have three traditional IRAs, you could take an RMD for one that satisfies all three lumped together. Yeah, so if, if you had to take $1,000 from each of them, let's assume it just fictitiously, mm -hmm. you could take 3000 from just one, and it satisfies all three, but you're taking it from just one account. Right, Yeah. but the kicker is you can't lump in like a 401k with that, mm -hmm. okay? So if you have it a 401k with a previous employer, you have to take an RMD from that 401k. You can't satisfy that by taking something from out of your IRA. traditional IRA. Yep. Um, so again, that's why it's beneficial for most people, I believe, to consolidate accounts in retirement, um, because if not, you're just scrambling to see where you need to take RMDs from, and it's easier just to take it from one account, in my yes. opinion. Yes, and logistically, and just because they consolidate it into one doesn't mean they have to sell those assets when they consolidate them. They can consolidate those and still hold what's been probably in all three of those accounts in my fictitious example. Right. Yeah. It's just easier for most people, I think, to have everything in one place. Yeah, to track it. Mistake number five is not utilizing qualified charitable distributions. So a common mistake that we see and Ashby has seen clearly is that making large charitable contributions uh, using after-tax income received from their RMD. Yeah. So in plain English, they'll take their RMD, they'll pay their tax on it, and then they'll donate to their local charity or church of choice. Yep. But once you reach age 70 and a half, you could use what's called a qualified charitable distribution. So this is a direct transfer of funds from your IRA directly to a qualified charity. And Ashby highlights that the key word here is direct. So the client never touches the money. It goes directly to the charity. Um, so given the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act increasing the standard deduction, a lot less people are itemizing deduction these days because the, the standard deduction the is so high. So high. Um, so the QCDs are pretty popular right now. So if you're above age 70 and a half and you're not itemizing deductions, a great way to receive a tax benefit for your charitable giving is to use the qualified charitable distribution. Um, but there are a few requirements that must be satisfied to use this strategy. So you have to be older than 70 and a half. And the maximum QCD that you can make is $100,000 annually, regardless of the number of charities that you choose. Yep. And the last thing Ashby lists here is that the QCD must be distributed from your IRA before the RMD deadline, which is generally December 31st. So instead of paying taxes on your RMD and not maximizing what you could be giving to charity, you can move it right from your IRA goes directly uh, to the charity or organization of choice that's qualified and you don't pay tax on your RMD. Love it. Because we have a lot of situations of clients where they don't need their RMD. So they're like, you know, what do, what do I do? I don't really need it. So either you can reinvest it into- yeah, don't uh, write that check from your checkbook. Right, Let's exactly. Let's take it from the IRA. Exactly. Um, so it's either, I think the best ways if you don't need your RMD is use the qualified charitable distribution, number one, or if you want to reinvest that money, you can take the money out, pay the taxes, and then redeposit the uh, net, net proceeds, proceeds into a taxable investment account. Absolutely. 
And that's number six. For those not in need of RMDs, leaving the RMD proceeds in your bank account rather than investing them. So again, reinvest the RMDs into a taxable investment account where you would just pay capital gains taxes on the gain, right? So if you reinvest $50,000, it grows to $60,000, you sell everything in there, you're only responsible to pay tax on the $10,000 gain, Yep, right? So that's another option uh, as well to the QCD. And number seven, Matt, is paying unnecessary penalties on early IRA distributions. So a lot of people aren't aware of a rule called Section 72T, which is also called the Substantial Equal Periodic Payments Rule. So Section 72T allows you to start taking payments from your IRA at any age. The payments must then continue for at least five years or until you are age 59 and a half, whichever period is longer. Exactly. And these payments must be substantially equal and therefore cannot be changed or stopped during the payment period unless you would become disabled or you die. Yep. So this is a big one for people who retire early, Matt. So if someone wants to call it quits at 50 and they can show to the IRS that they're going to take systematic, periodic withdrawals from the IRA until they're 59 and a half. In your example, yeah, they'll be that'll be waived. Yeah, they won't have to pay the 10% early distribution penalty. The only thing they'll be responsible for is the ordinary income tax. Now, what happens if they break that? Uh, then they are subject to the 10% penalty on all their distributions. So in your example, if they get to age 55, right? And I just want to, I'm, I'm pressing this just so listeners can, can understand this. Mm-hmm. So in your example, they get to 55 and they're like, you know what? Uh, I made some bad investment decisions and I can't, uh, the account's really down and I can't take that amount of income anymore. So what happens listeners is you are going to get retroactively charged that 10% penalty. Right, on all your distributions. For the first five years. Right. Yeah. So that is an option for people, but I want to make sure that everyone's carefully considering that because you can't just stop it and think that everything's going to be fine. No, because you can be in a position, if you don't make wise decisions on the investment side and that account's really down and you're not able to keep taking that equal, uh, you know, monthly or yearly withdrawal, you're going to have a tax bill and you're not going to have any money to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's, so that's the pitfall you got to be very careful about. Yeah. And you need to be sure that you're done working and you're going to keep drawing off of your IRA because, again, you just can't stop that or else it's a huge retroactive huge tax bill. Yeah. yeah. But it is out there for it's nice for yeah. people that want to retire early Absolutely. that have worked hard. And, and we're starting to see more and more of that, Mark, with everything yeah. going on with COVID. We've had, you know, a good sum of clients that have reached out and said, listen, I'm thinking about retiring early. They're just kind of maybe their work circumstances have changed or their work environment and they're ready to hang up their hat. And that's definitely an option that helps them achieve that goal. Yeah. And the only other thing to consider, too, is when you do retire early, you know, you have to take into consideration that you're going to if you're not going to work part-time to get insurance, you're going to have to get your own health insurance to gap you until you're 65 and eligible for Medicare. Yeah, that's a biggie for people. So that's, you know, I mean, it depends on every state, as we know, but, you know, I, it's anywhere between sometimes upwards of 700 to $1,000 a month per person mm-hmm. to get your own health insurance policy. So it's not cheap. So you have to take that into consideration if you do decide to retire early, because I think we take for granted how cheap, you know, large employer insurance is because people really don't see it. They just see the dollar, $2 or $3 that come out of every check to help pay for that. Sure. But when it's on the individual, that's a huge expense that we see that people don't really plan 
plan for if they retire early. That's right. And so even uh, maybe some of the co-pays, mm-hmm. right, um, that may be a little bit more sizable than their employer-sponsored plan. So if you use a husband and wife example, you're going to have 1500 to $2,000 a month in just premiums. And then on top of that, you're going to have co-pays, right? And it adds up quick. And a lot of people, um, you know, they target to get their house paid off by the time they retire. And guess what? You're, that cash flow expense gets redirected from your mortgage payment to your health insurance premiums. And then all of a sudden, these people turn 65 and they think that they're just rolling in the dough right. because they go on Medicare at that point. And a lot of our clients, their feedback to us, Mark, is they're spending somewhere between three to $350 a month in total expenses. And that's a combination between Part A, Part B, and a supplemental policy. And when you were used to spending 1500 to two grand uh, for you know a couple, and then all of a sudden that goes down to six to 700, that's a big raise you get at 65. Right, exactly. Right? A, lot of, a lot of cash flow freed up. Yeah. Yeah. Time to take the next trip. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So just something to consider too if um, if you do consider retiring early. Um, anything else you want to mention, Matt? I know we ran a little later than we usually do, so we apologize for that, but we had a lot of stuff to get to you all uh, this week. Um Nope, not, nothing major. We got uh, a, a jobs number coming out on uh, on Friday mm-hmm. uh, for August. It's going to be uh, looked at very closely. Uh, markets closed on Monday for the Labor Day holiday. So that's the only two things I'd like to point out to listeners. Yeah, yeah. And the only other thing that I'll say is that we're getting more chatter about the election coming up. And just remember that, you know, we put in place uh, game plans uh, and investing strategies of how to deal with this. So if you have a plan, continue to follow it. You're going to hear a lot of noise over the next couple of weeks. Um, but don't let it derail you from the plan that you implemented um, because you got to stay on that path to be successful. So Yeah, listeners, and like as I said at the beginning of the podcast, if uh, you did not get our, uh, if you're not on our email distribution list and you did not get our September market outlook, which we detail um, about six different themes we think are going to be playing out, uh, I think it's a great read. I would encourage you to reach out to Mark to get on that list. Again, it's mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com. And you can also send any questions that we could discuss on next week's podcast. Okay. We'll be back with everyone next week around our normal time, Tuesday or Wednesday. And we will talk to everyone then. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. 
This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.